0: You're listening to another edition of Home Talk with Greg McKim on Tuesday, March 26, 2019. If you're listening on a different date, then this show was either pre-recorded or is a rebroadcast. Hi, I'm your host, Greg McKim. On this show, we talk about just about anything related to owning a home, buying, selling, financing, insurance, maintenance, remodeling. New construction, rental properties, and flipping, single-family homes, condos, you name it. If it's related to a home, we talk about it. Well, I don't know everything about homes, but I do have some experience. I've worked in real estate-related industries since the 1970s, starting out as a laborer contractor, or actually laborer carpenter, worked for a contractor, everything from hanging drywall to digging footings. Also, at one point, owned a mortgage company. I am currently a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty and also a licensed loan originator with LoanZilla. My loan originator license number is 106202 and the LoanZilla license is 67412. Since I'm not an expert on everything that has to do with homes, I frequently bring in guests. And my guest today will be Steve Waltar with Legacy estate planning. He's an estate planning attorney, and we'll get to him in about five or ten minutes. But Before that, I will be talking a little bit about mortgage and real estate news. So let's jump right in. I like to find interesting articles from different sources, and I have one here today that was published in the Seattle Times on 315, written by Mike Rosenberg. So I'm going to read it right to you since I don't have it memorized, and I'll skip through some parts of it. This has to do with projections of what's going to happen this spring in the Seattle area, greater King County, I should say, real estate market. So let's get started. Mike goes on to say that after eight months of sliding prices, King County's housing market picked back up again. So should we be expecting another home shopping season nightmare in the near future? Well, after rocketing up the last six years, the median price of a single family home in King County fell from May of 18 to January of 19 by about $116,000, which is a 16% drop. That was the second biggest eight-month decline on record behind only the peak of the housing bust that began in 2008. But then in February, prices, median home prices, again, King County, rose $45,000, the biggest one-month increase ever in actual dollar terms. So the question is, is this going to make it tough for buyers? Well, spring through summer, you may know, is the real estate season, we call it. Over the past five years, prices shot up an average of 60000 from this time of year through summer, March through summer. That's a typical sort of fluctuation. During that span last year when prices dropped to $116,000 starting in May, during that time, the normal seasonal adjustment, was just 8,000. But last month's jump of 45,000, that was triple the gain for February. So it's pretty likely, according to Mike and other experts, that prices will raise again this spring. But the question always is, by how much? The million dollar question, I guess. So is it really gonna be back to a super hot market? Well, problem with some of these numbers, of course, is that they're medians for the entire county. And a lot of this was skewed by some homes that are selling in pricier parts of the county. For instance, in the east side, and um, the east side housing prices actually went down a little bit in, in February, but home values in the Seattle and South King County didn't, didn't rise as much as the countywide median. Again, that's because some of those pricier home areas went up. One, a couple of things that are happening that are in favor of buyers The time now it takes for a median home to sell has grown from eight days to about 38, which is about the national average right now. By the way, being in the industry as long as I have, I remember when it was really typical for people to expect their home would be on the market 60 days before they'd have an offer. So when you think a home is on the market for two or three days, and, and, and I mean, excuse me, if a home's been on the market for 10 days and there's something wrong, that's amazing still. Um, the typical home sale is selling about one percent below list price now compared to last year at this time about four percent over. And an interesting statistic here, Redfin says its agents reported eleven percent of home sales in February featured bidding wars, down from seventy-nine percent in February of last year. So as a buyer, it's really difficult to buy a home when you're in a bidding war. So that 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 significant drop it bodes well for buyers, and it's still good for sellers. What we want, of course, at some point is a balanced market. Even sellers get a little stressed and don't have a lot of fun during a super seller's market, primarily because they're going to be buyers if they're staying in this area. They have, they're have they faced with the same problem people buying homes on them are. Partly, though, is because most people genuinely want to get a fair or high price for their home, but they also want to be fair to all the buyers that are coming in. And I'll tell you, as a listing broker, sell I find that sellers aren't, they're not thrilled about turning away 10 people and giving a house to one. Nobody really likes doing that. It's not fun to do because you know you've just dashed the hopes of 9 or 10 other people. So a couple other points in, in Mike's article. Um, condo construction du- tripled the number of condos in the market in the past year, which helped push prices down 8% in that span. And that's helped relieve some of the competition for smaller single-family homes. So predicting the market, a chief economist at Redfin studied all these numbers and came to the conclusion, 2019 will likely be a calm year without any big price increases. Let's see if his crystal ball was clear or not. Now, um, that's about it. I think that you know it's pretty, pretty obvious right now to most people in the real estate market that we've settled way down from where we were, but it's still a seller's market. Okay, so that's enough about real estate. I want to talk a little bit about the interest rate environment. Now, I've been in the mortgage business since 1991, and I track interest rates because that's my business. Um, You may have heard recently that the Federal Reserve decided to quit raising short-term rates for the near future. And oftentimes, my borrowers ask me, what does that mean for mortgage rates? It's a mixed bag. The rates that the Federal Reserve sets are not directly tied to mortgage rates. They influence mortgage rates, and mortgage rates influence what the Federal Reserve does. And I have seen many times in my my career when the the Federal Reserve raises the short-term rates and 30-year mortgage rates for homes drop and vice versa. And there's different reasons for that. I won't get into all of them. But what I'd like to do, and I'll start doing this on a fairly regular basis, is just give people some sort of idea what they can expect based on market predictions of my own and some other sources that I go to about the direction of interest rates on home loans right now. And my gut feeling right now is they're going to stay about the same for the next four to six months because there's no strong economic indicators either way, although there's a little bit of rumbling that we might be coming upon a recession. There's a couple of factors that influence that if you're kind of wonky. One is what's called the yield curve. I'm not going to get into it. If you're wonky, look it up online. Also, China's economy is slowing down. The China trade wars are dampening the economy in the U.S. a little bit. Europe's economy is faltering a little bit. As a general rule, when the economy slows, mortgage rates drop. So what I've done here to get a little bit more specific for my listeners is I've taken a rate sheet from one of the lenders we work with at Loanzilla and took a snapshot of the price of the rates on January 25th, February 26th, and today, March 26th. Now, you might remember, if you've listened to my other shows, that rates really don't change on mortgages. The rate is a commodity that is traded on the bond market. The price of the rate changes daily. So what I do is I look at January, and I, I find a rate that is priced at, um, I, actually, what I did, I, I'll go backwards. I picked a, a rate today, I picked 4%, the rates that are available for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage for a qualified buyer for certain things, just to give you an idea, between, or between five and three and a quarter. Now, I'm not advertising rates here, I'm just educating. And for a given rate of 4%, the price of that rate, which happens to be a lender credit, is roughly equal to A rate of four and a half in January. You might be confused. Let me just stop and go over it one more time. So, you pick a rate today of four, and the price of that rate is a credit of 2.7%. That money is used to pay loan fees and other closing costs. In January, on on January 25th, to get roughly the same amount of credit, 2.9%, your rate's four and a half. So, you could say for roughly the same price, rates dropped half a percent and that would be a pretty good way to put it. Now, keep in mind that when you read news and you see other indicators, they will use the APR to try and approximate these things. It's not a very accurate way to do it, but it does give you a general idea. And if you were to look at the APRs over the last two months, you'd see they have dropped about a half percent. So on to a little bit more news. You might remember from some of my other shows that I rail against the big banks. Um, We're a small local mortgage broker. We work with national lenders, but they're small compared to the big boys. And i like to find interesting information about what some of the big guys are doing. And there's a publication I subscribe to called Mortgage Professional Association Magazine. And here we've got another example of big banks playing loose with the rules, trying to take advantage of other people. Here's the article by Ryan Smith, dated today, March 16, 2019. Banking giants accused of fixing Fannie and Freddie bond prices. A new lawsuit accuses some of the world's largest financial institutions of conspiring to fix the prices of bonds by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The lawsuit filed in a federal court in Pennsylvania alleges 16 financial giants, including Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, J.P. Chase, and a couple others, exploited their dominant position conspiring to increase the Fannie freddie bond prices by overcharging or underpaying investors in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bond transactions. So what does that mean to you, the consumer? Somehow that gets passed on to you. Just one more example of how they continue to do this in spite of all the hoopla after the 2008 financial meltdown about how regulators were going to rein them in. They didn't do a very good job. So that's enough of news, real estate and mortgage news, and me ranting and raving against the big banks, which is going to become a standard thing that I do. (laughs) So I'd like to introduce my guest, Steve Waltar from Legacy Group. He is a estate planning attorney. And Steve, please go ahead and say hello to the audience. Hey, Greg, it's good to be here. And boy, that takes me back to when you helped me buy a home. <laughs> <laughs> I misspoke. It's a legacy group. It's legacy estate planning. And um, Steve, how do we know each other again?
1: We are related. Yeah, oh, you're yeah. your mom and my dad, brother, sister. Yeah, yeah that's
0: right. So yeah, we're, such the, a we're, deal. we're the two firstborns. We
1: go back a ways, yeah. yeah we were uh, the two favorites. I firstborns think. rule. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. We used to have contests down at
0: Grandma's. We would at Thanksgiving we would do a weigh in and a weigh out.
1: Oh yeah,
0: Grandma Doris. And who put the most weight on one time?
1: Well, I gained five pounds. My brother Doug gained seven in one sitting. In one sitting. How'd Scott do? I don't know. All yeah. I know is we were all we were all in the three or four pound range. But I think yeah, it was so good. But we would end up in the fetal position. So we learned over time not to eat that much. And we can't yeah. do that these days. Grandma's breakfast too,
0: man. It's unbelievable. It's like you could it, she had enough food for twenty people for yeah. just one one person. Right. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about your background, since I think it's uh, important. So um, Steve was actually born in Boston, Massachusetts. I think that's why your dad was attending MIT, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. His dad's a nuclear physicist. uh, But he's really from the Pacific Northwest, spent most of his time growing up down in Richland. I remember taking visits down there and moved to Seattle in 1980 and went to SPU, got his BA cum laude in 84. Then he went to Princeton and studied uh, graduate school in Princeton Theological Seminary, and uh, then went back to Puget Sound and went to um, law school at the University of Puget Sound, and then eventually ended up at the Seattle C- U uh, uh, School of Law, and was admitted to this Washington State Bar in 94, and you are admitted to practice in the United States District Court, Western District of Washington, correct?
1: Exactly.
0: I, I read it right. Yep. I, didn't, I wasn't yep. even wearing my glasses. I'm pretty impressed. Hold this thing three feet away. So
1: James Bond signed my diploma from law school. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> ding 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 ding. Did they have the music in the background? No. no. Can you imagine having your name
0: James? Yeah, he always bond? says,
1: "Call me Jim. Call me Jim."
0: <laughs> he, he doesn't say Bond. No.
1: James Bond.
0: All right. So um, and then '96, you started your own law practice in areas associated with estate planning, which includes trusts, estate tax law, wills, probate, asset protection planning, business succession planning disability planning, and so forth, right? Now, I've got a long, long list of credentials here, but to get on with the show, right. I would recommend people go to your website, which is walter.com, waltar.com.
1: Yes, waltar.com. We're probably going to change it to legacy, L-E-P, planning.com, but right now it's waltar.com. By
0: the way, the reason I said Walter is because everybody else in the family does, but Steve Not like, me. Steve says waltar because it's a derivative, of waltare, which is what the first- Finish. Finish, yeah. that's where, where Finns. So, W-A-L-T-A-R.com, and if you want to reach Steve at his office, feel free to call 425-455-6788 or email info at waltar.com. And by the way, if you'd like to call in during the show, feel free to do so. We'll take any questions or comments at 425-373-5527, or you can always reach me, Greg McKim, off-air at 206- 250-6545 or email me at gmckim that's g-m-c-k-i-m at loanzilla.com so let's jump into some of the topics that we had planned to talk about today Um, here's some headlines we were talking about how to own a home what type of how to vest in title Mm -hmm. this question comes up with my clients sure in fact I had a client years ago who had uh, lived in California his wife had passed away and he said they had taken title vesting in a Way that they hadn't thought through, mm-hmm. and it caused complications down the road. Now I don't. I'm a little fuzzy on all the reasons <laughs> why that happened. Looks like we got a call coming in, Eric. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what took place, but he recommended a different way to do it. But I'm really adverse to ever recommending that because sure, I'm not an attorney. Right. So I tell people talk to your attorney about how to vest title. The most common way is people take title as let's say if they're married couple, they'll take it as husband and wife. Right. Or if they're single, they'll just take it as a single man or a mm-hmm. single individual, a mm-hmm. single person. Right. Can you expand upon that a little bit, some ideas about, let's start with, you know, common husband and wife. Yeah,
1: yeah, common scenario. So we almost need to explain that in for liquid things, when people own a bank account or a checking account, whether it's 5000 or 50000 if, if if husband and wife are on account, it's presumed it's joint with right of survivor. And and that is not true with real property. So when, you, when husband and wife take title in a home, it's technically tenants in common. That is different than joint with right of survivor. So what that means is each of them own one half of the whole. They don't each own 100% interests. So that means it's going to take the two of them to sign, to sell, or refi. And when one dies, you got a dead person's name on title with the survivor. I think the thinking is real property is a big deal. So you don't want a bunch of people going together, and a bunch of old folks are on title with the young folks, and then it just would automatically just go to the youngest person you know, upon death. So... It's just a big choice to, to buy real property. So the default is every person that owns it, they own their portion. And so when they die, they can get to control who gets that. let back up for a
0: second then. I, I see title, I'd say, 95% of the time right, when it's, a, when it's a married couple or partners of any kind. Sure. You know, husband and wife husband and husband whatever it is right sure it is yeah okay. w- does that is that right of survivorship or tenants in common unless it's written in a specific It there is not
1: right of survivorship so it he- is it is tenants in common you own what you have if you and I bought property together you should be able to control your portion with your will or your trust and I should be able to control control mine
0: and now how is that determined if your husband and wife is automatically assumed it's 50-50 unless delineated or specified otherwise
1: yeah and th- it's always presumed to be equal amongst the number of buyers if there's three buyers you each own a third All if there's right. two buyers it's half and half and of course, with with husband and wife doesn't matter who put in the money. It's deemed half and half as far as there's no gifting concern.
0: Okay, so now if a person was concerned about this for whatever reason, let's give an example. Um, let's say you had. Well, I don't know what example, but you, you're more you're more versed in this. What would be some examples of why why a couple wouldn't want to have tenants in common? but instead it would want to have right of survivorship. What What's the problem at death of one party with yeah, tenants yeah, in common? Yeah,
1: the, the problem upon death is people think, oh, we're community, property, state, husband, wife, it automatically goes to the spouse, and that's not true. So when people die, if you're on title, that generally triggers a probate. Whether you die without a will, it's called intestate, sounds painful to us guys, but even if you die with a will, the best analogy is if you hire an architect and you, you pay for a blueprint, does that blueprint build your home? Does it?
0: Uh, Not, very, not, 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 well, not a very no. good job. No.
1: no, you have to hire the construction people yeah, yeah. and lay a foundation. So, same thing. A will is just a blueprint. Okay. It doesn't control joint tenancy like bank accounts. It doesn't control IRAs or 401Ks. It doesn't control life insurance. What it controls is when your name's on title. Husband and wife are on title to a house, husband dies. Wife can keep living there. She's still on the hook for the mortgage, but she can't sell until she does a probate. Explain a little bit more about exactly what probate means. It always sounds like this horrible process. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I sure want to avoid it. Yeah, Yeah. Um, Probate's just a Latin term that means to prove. Prove who died. All right. Prove if there was a will or not. And then you kind of, there's a notification process. You notify the creditors, that's weird, and you notify the heirs. So if someone dies without a will, guess what? If they're married, a spouse and the children get notice. And if there's a will, you may have your aunt and uncle and a couple of charities and what all. So it's notifying who's listed in the will or notifying the children or the the natural heirs. And it's notifying the creditors.
0: And this goes through the court system.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of courts are that lovely system that's so efficient. No, but courts are careful and slow. And so they want to make sure everyone is notified. You pay off the debts. You don't want to deed a title in a home to someone unless you know that no one has a competing claim. What's a typical, from from the point of death through
0: the proof of notice being distributed to all parties, what's a typical time frame for that to
1: happen? Typical is 6 to 18 months.
0: 6 to 18 months, and then does it automatically kick in, or do one of the parties, the heirs? That's
1: a great question. It doesn't automatically happen. In fact, sometimes husband dies, and it's 10, 15, 20 years later, and and the wife tries to sell the home, and she says, oh, you need a letter testamentary. So she calls an attorney. Can you draft a letter testamentary? No, I can do a probate two decades after your husband died, and I can get you appointed. And, you know, so it's just this legal process.
0: Two years ago, I had a listing up in Linwood, and it was a listing um, where a trust had had inherited the property from a Mm -hmm. death. And they told me when I took the listing that all the paperwork's in order. Nothing was in order. (laughs) Of course. Nothing. And it, it was a nightmare. Yeah. I, I can't even go back and describe what happened because uh, I was involved in the fringes and I would just say, please get this done. And finally, we got it done. But
1: it was yeah, very yeah.
0: confusing and convoluted.
1: So, I mean, probate's not gnarly and horrible. It's not like California or Hawaii. But, you know, it's a process. So six to 18 months might be a thousand from, a month. From the time somebody starts it. Yeah, from when they start it. So okay. that's a reason many people decide, oh, can we own it as joint with right of survivor? You can. It's not normal. You have to ask it. Usually, you need an attorney to say, yes, we really want it that way.
0: Okay. So, if one of my clients says, I want to buy this house as husband and wife with, um, what's it? what do you call it again exactly? Joint with right of survivorship. Joint with right of survivorship. And they go to the title company, so that's how we're going to do it. The title company is going to say, or the escrow company is going to say, you need to have an attorney
1: give us a document stating this is what you want? Generally. Okay. And well, that would be really true if it's not a married couple, because they you're giving up legal rights. If you purchase something as joint with right of survivor, you don't control it on your death. The other owner automatically gets it. So you might convince someone, don't have to hire an attorney if it's a husband-wife deal or husband-husband-wife-wife. You know, If someone's married and they really know and they can say, hey, we don't want to hire an attorney, we want survivorship. Okay, They if, could probably convince someone, but it's not the norm.
0: Okay, if it were joint with right of survivorship, then it would, it would skip probate. Correct. Because it just automatically transfers on record in the King County records as... From one spouse to, to the deceased spouse to the correct, mm-hmm. and who who implements that? Who takes that step? Would it be the remaining spouse or yeah.
1: Upon death, it's you get a death certificate and you could kind of um, usually you don't retitle. I mean, probate is the way you get appointed, you handle the deeds, and you retitle it. Another little trick we have is is called community property agreements. There's a way to do in Washington an agreement. It doesn't happen because you live here. It doesn't happen because you're married, but it it happens because you sign a contract. And it basically says everything we have is community. Anything we get in the future is community. And when one of us dies, it all goes to the survivor without court. So that's a document you sign. And
0: when you say everywhere, everything, what if your title had been,
1: per- what if the home had been purchased before you
0: did that, and the title was tenants in common? Would it would it would it, would it, would it supersede that? Or- it
1: does. Community property agreement trump wills, trusts, contracts. It's kind of a super contract.
0: Okay. So a person yeah. that started thinking about this today and said, gee, you know, we didn't take it as joint with rider survivorship. We took it tenant common. We don't like this idea of having to go through probate and all that. Sure. But let's go get the best way to do it, go get it, one way to do it. Not one the best, way, one yeah.
1: We yeah. just write up a, a community property agreement. Exactly. And then that would supersede Yeah, it. you don't have to change any title. It's kind of just a survivor wins. Okay. What's I had th- a couple into last night and that, or today, and we talked about that. They did a simple I love you, honey, Will. I said, that's going to cause a six- to eight-month probate. And when the survivor dies, you're going to pay hundreds of thousands in taxes. So there are better ways to do it. Oh, so there's some
0: tax consequences <laughs> about all this too.
1: There can be.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: So let's go back to the typical owners, which are usually couples. Sure. Right, most often. Yeah. So what's what is? You said that one of the downsides to the right survivorship is the remaining owner lacks some flexibility on what they can, how they dispense the property, or I, I, maybe I got confused. Yeah, the on that. first
1: person to die loses all control and loses all tax protection. The first person to die. The first person to die. Okay, the
0: first person to die, of course, they're, if, if they have a, a spouse, I'm assuming in most cases that that person's financial well-being is the person who deceased most important.
1: Pro- but they But, but they might have other things. But they, they might, might have children, and they may not want the survivor to remarry and give it away to a new spouse, and all of a sudden your kid's out of the loop.
0: Okay, so they might want to have it. So the, the reason for the tenants in common, then, is that that can all be... Just that can all be determined through the will.
1: Exactly, through the estate plan. And there's you know, there's community property agreements. There's wills that have tax protection. There's wills without it. There's living trusts. There's even transfer on death deeds. So there's lots of ways to avoid court. Okay, so what it boils down to is that it really makes sense before you
0: buy a property to sit down and figure out which one of these approaches is the best for you based on, you know, and, and it could change in the future, and then you go back and you could change it if, it, if correct, things changed. Correct, correct. Rather than people, just to go
1: with, hey— Husband and wife, automatically tenants come. You don't even know what you're doing. I think it's a good default rule because, again, I mean, in your experience, Greg, isn't the purchase of a real estate or a rental, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. It's you're responsible. It, it hopefully can appreciate. It, it's It's a big value deal. Yeah. So I think it's a good default to say anyone that goes into real property, they own what they own. And then you can see an attorney and say, ah, let's change what we own. Let's gift it. Let's so you're change saying let's just go ahead
0: it. and go with the standard, which is the tenants in common, and, and then go afterwards and change it.
1: In general, yeah. That's a good default rule.
0: All right. And one of the we- reasons to do that is when you're buying real estate, it's unbelievably stressful anyway. You're already making huge decisions, not only about the real estate itself, but also about the loan. It's compressed. There's all kinds of time constraints. And so you're thinking. And people one more- say
1: I have a lot of paperwork. I've never felt so powerless as when I was buying a home, and they said you have to sign all these forms, and I couldn't change any of them, other than the fact that they misspelled my name. And even there, I have to say, oh, I am also known as, or I may have formerly been known as Walter. <laughs> no, I'm Walter. It's pretty funny. It
0: is pretty funny. So, and the other thing is that people, not only are they buying a home, thinking about moving, getting a home loan, all that entails, they're also looking at insurance. Then you add a state plan on top of it. Probably this it's is too much to tackle. Yeah, yeah get, so, get through the deal. But after you do it, then sure. maybe a visit with someone. What would be a typical consultation charge to just walk through some of these ideas and then think of a, a, a plan of action for for a couple? Yeah,
1: it's from zero to $600. For, I mean, I so usually a, give free consults. Some people charge, some people don't. Usually there's at least a, a 30 minute free consult people will give. Okay, so that's a reasonable thing to do sure. considering yeah. how important this is.
0: I mean, the average person spends at least that much a year on insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't give much thought to what we just talked about here. Okay, so I think we've covered most of the ownership, how to own a piece
1: of property on title. Um, The one we didn't cover is trusts. I mean, if you have a trust, you can have revocable trusts, and you can own it. And and in fact, you could own things. You could even, most married couples will do a joint trust. If they agree on, you know, they do taxes, they communicate, they're not a lot of separate property, they'll probably be joint trustees, joint beneficiaries, they just do it that way. But sometimes people, like, want to buy a rental with inherited money. So even in a joint trust, you could buy something as wife's separate property in a joint trust. Okay, one of the challenges, is you're aware of, is that with a trust, it's hard to get a standard loan? Correct, because lenders yep. don't. Some lend. do it, some don't. Sometimes they want an attorney letter. It's another hoop to jump. Yeah, kind it, of it, a hassle. Yeah, it
0: is. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac where, is where most of the money comes from for home loans. Right. F- f- FHA and VA too, and those the lenders that the guidelines for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are very strict about any type of a trust because it, it it's one more layer of separation. If the bank needs to foreclose on a default, yeah, the banks perceive it as being such, which is true. That's one. That's one. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of protection. Now, so what some people do is they buy in their names, and then they, then they redeed it, they, they reclaim o- deed it, or over yeah. to a trust. Now, sure. now, just for listeners to know, if you ever read your actual note
1: <laughs> on a loan, Greg's that you a good get, detail person. Hire Greg; he <laughs> will he will really look out for you.
0: It says that if you change the ownership of the property, if you transfer the ownership to any party other than the two people or the parties that were already involved in the transaction on the loan, that the lender has the right to do a um due on sale clause, which means that they could accelerate and make you pay your loan off in full the minute they find out about it. Now, you've done this a few times for people.
1: Thousands. And yeah. And you There's a f- federal statute that can't accelerate if it's your primary residence. Okay. So I don't care what the contract says. There's federal law. This is that the first time I ever heard of that. Oh yeah. It's the Gromaine Saint James Act or something. Okay. So I I I could They are looking out for their own interest. It would okay. be better to to scare someone into thinking that it'd be better for them to think that they so can they collect literally, even literally if they don't
0: can't. have a legal basis to do as what you're saying. correct.
1: Now, when it's a rental or going into an LLC, that that could be exercised that clause, and that's
0: because it's not owner occupied. Okay, correct. That's really important to know. I was not aware of that. Now, of course, it's more common almost in those rentals and LLCs for people to do that because they're more concerned about liability. The, right. A lot of times they'll transfer over to partnerships and so yeah. forth. However, and how many times have you done those? Uh, LLCs or... I mean, set up people who bought a property in their name and then converted it to an LLC or converted it to a trust or some other oh, sort of... Oh, frequently.
1: The The best practice is actually to get permission from a lender. Always. Um, if, but if the other can. thing is, honestly, there are times that... that um, with a couple of rentals, especially with a really good killer rate on a loan, if if my clients sign the deed moving it into their trust and they leave it with me, we don't even record it. I hold it. So if your dad was thinking, oh, do I give something to you or I give it to Scott and he's holding his own deed, that's not really, the, the intention's not clear. It's not enforceable. But if you hired me to do an estate plan and and – you had a rental, and and you said I deed it into my trust. I could hold it, and even if you died, I could record it after you died. How interesting! So it's pretty cool that it works that way.
0: Obviously, it's legal. Otherwise, you may be doing right. it,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm kind of practical about that. Look, yeah. okay. let's not record it till you get down to 35. Then let's put it in, or let's ask for permission, or why don't we just hold it as a safety net? Okay. Now yeah.
0: I would also think that lenders would not exercise this acceleration clause unless they felt, that for some reason, they were in Potentially we're gonna be harmed. They're disadvantaged or something. Yeah, and and, right. and this is when lenders think they're gonna be harmed, when you stop making payments. Lenders as a general rule go through county records and look through and see what people are doing. I mean it's
1: possible. Well, it and could it be, might be sold from one lender right. to another and, and know, it's possible,
0: it but just be aware of that. I think we should go ahead and take a little break. So we're moving into a break right now. This is Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show that covers home ownership from A to Z. We air each Tuesday here at at 1150 AM KKNW from three to four. Please feel free to call in during the show at 425-373-5527. And we'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away.
2: Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it.
1: No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you
0: have
2: help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Through the generous support of individuals like you, Trees for the Future has planted over 155 million trees and changed thousands of lives in the last 29 years. With your help, Trees for the Future continues to train thousands of impoverished farming families across Africa to plant their way out of poverty using an agroforestry method called the forest garden. Forest gardens consist of nearly 4,000 fast growing fruit, nut, and timber trees that thrive alongside climate appropriate crops, surrounded by a living green fence. These forest gardens eliminate hunger in two years increase household income over 400% in four years, and have changed landscapes from dry lands for monocropping to rich soils supporting over 20 varieties of crops and marketable products. Learn more about how you can be part of these efforts by visiting trees.org radio. That's trees.org radio. Hey Kevin, thinking about saving for retirement? Yeah, but how do I start? It's easy with AVO, a retirement coach. Let's learn the AVO bet. A is for taking action.
0: Not anxiety? No, Kevin, you're gonna be fine. You sing? Barely. V is for variety. Huh, change up my strategy. Okay. Pose for
2: Optimize Your Savings. Let Ava lead the way. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
1: Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com.
0: Welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show that covers home ownership from soup to nuts. We air each Tuesday right here on 1150 AM KKNW from 3 to 4. I'm your host Greg McKim. Feel free to call in while on air at 425-373-5527. You can reach me off air at 206-250-6545. Again, that's 206-250-6545. You can also listen to this or prior shows by podcast at 1150kknw.com under Audio Archives. So my guest today is Steve Waltar, estate planning attorney with Legacy Estate Planning. And you can reach Steve off air at 425-455-6788 or email info at waltar. That's W-A-L-T-A-R.com. Again, info at waltar.com or go to waltar.com. So before the break, we covered different ways to take title when you buy a property. And Steve mentioned that you don't have to worry about it at that time because you can go back and make changes later. We talked about the differences between tenants in common, which is the most typical way that people take title. By the way, in case you're not understanding what title means, it's it's the, how the recording of ownership is um, determined or how, 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 the, how ownership is determined and then recorded with the county for legal purposes. Another way to do it is um, right joint with right of survivorship. And he's talked about several other ideas. Uh, we talked about the pros and cons of probate and um, also about putting together a community property agreement at any time if you want to change the way that your real estate is transferred at death from one party to another. And we're going to talk a little bit more about trusts. Uh, Takeaway from that last s- segment is that since some of this stuff is very complicated, and during the home buying process, you probably have enough balls juggling in the air. at One time, you can always do this afterwards. Have a sit down with an attorney like Steve. Typically, they either charge a 30 minutes, uh, give no free, <laughs> given <laughs> free advice for 30 minutes <laughs> to an hour but it's going to cost anywhere, depending upon who you see, 0 to $600 to have some advice and then figure out what direction you want to head. Did I cover things properly there, Steve? Yeah,
1: and, of course, fees are going to depend on. Is it a will? Is it a trust? Is it complicated? Well, the ultimate long-term fees. Yeah. Sure, but I, you're right. I, I think that it's not that expensive to see an attorney and get some advice.
0: Yeah, and, you know, this is, this is the biggest purchase of your life in most cases. Um, you might want to think about these things since it's it, the 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 in the uh you know the impact of what happens when one person unfortunately dies can be very significant to the next person. So at the break when we we're talking you said maybe we should cover trusts a little bit more. Is that you mentioned that?
1: Um yeah, let's maybe contrast trusts and versus a transfer on death deed and then let's get into gifting and and okay. stuff like that. Right. So you know, living trust is a nice tool. It's not for everyone, but there's ways to own things and avoid court when one spouse dies, avoid court when the survivor dies, and double your tax-free amount. So for a lot of couples that have north of $2 million, it's a pretty good tool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, $2 million in all assets? In or? all assets, okay. yeah. And that right. includes your the death benefit of your life insurance. So you're taxed on... Everything, whether it's probatable or not, you know, whether right. it's a beneficiary designation. I mean, I got two million of life insurance on me alone. Okay, you know, I'll keep that so, in mind. Yeah, exactly. I, I my beneficiary. Yeah, so a lot of times people think, oh, I don't have a taxable estate, but if you add up someone's VIP, you know, or their their retirement, their um, their home, and uh, you know, they worked at any company around here, Boeing, whatever, it's very easy to get up north of two million, and mm-hmm. with poor planning. Everything could go to a U.S. citizen spouse, but when the spouse dies, what if it was a $3 million estate? That's probably going to cause a $100,000 Washington state estate tax. Mm -hmm. So that's a big problem. So to avoid that, you can do wills with bypass trusts, or you can do a living trust. So one involves court, one doesn't. You can do the same amount of tax planning either way. But that's why I say, look, you have your assets, and you ought to sit down and talk about your planning.
0: Mm -hmm. At
1: what point, I mean... For the average person out there, that, that may be, although a lot of people,
0: especially when they get into their 60s and 70s, have built up a lot of assets, as you mentioned. And the life insurance is something I wasn't I wasn't thinking about. Even right. though I used to sell life insurance, I forgot about mm, that. Yeah.
1: um,
0: So where, where does it start to make sense? What 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 number of, say, overall assets what do you think it starts to make sense to think about doing a trust?
1: So I would say when people are young, this is more than answering that. You know, when people turn 18, my daughters, they didn't need a will or trust. They needed powers of attorney. Right? All right. So I did that. When someone has a child, they should do a will because they want to list a guardian. Or a single person, once they have a house, they probably ought to do a will. So the question is, when should you do a trust? I think from a financial standpoint, when it's a couple, when you're substantially above $2 million, it makes sense in Washington. Okay, so in Oregon, a, it'd be $1 million. Okay, so it depends on the state. Yeah, it depends on the state. The other thing is when you think about who gets, who, who are you going to provide for? I mean— uh, if your mom wanted to say, hey, things go to you and your brother, you know, you're adults, you're fine. I mean, she doesn't have to restrict it and have it be in trust. But if you want to give something to someone who's a minor or has special needs, or you always look about who's going to get it and do they need help? Do they need guidance? Does it need to be in trust?
0: The idea that the trust then is managed on behalf exactly. of Exactly. And you heir. can
1: have a trust in a will. It's called a testamentary trust. You just go to court to set it up. Or Sometimes it makes sense to just do a trust now, and it's a lot easier for someone to handle it after someone dies. Okay. Now, of course, when you're talking about a um,
0: person's assets, if they had a million-dollar property, it would be how much equity they had in the property that mattered. Correct. Right. Okay.
1: right. So if, yep. they, if they owe nothing on it, it's a million. If they owe 800000 sure. they have 200000 yeah. One thing we should not skip over, whether people have planning or no planning, um, sometimes they, they buy real properties, and then tragedy, tragedy, you know, husband has a stroke or 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 you know, there's a the car accident and then someone wants to like refinance or get some money out or sign papers or something. And if they have no plan in place and no one not even died, but if there's incapacity, a husband and wife can't sign for each other. So that means you have to go to court to get someone appointed just to be able to sign to refi the home or do the tax return or do something. So incapacity planning is another reason to have some some estate planning in place, not just death, but during life.
0: So now you're talking about potentially using a, having a power attorney set up.
1: Right. Yeah. If a husband and wife buy a house and they go years and years, never do a will, never do powers of attorney, and all of a sudden there's a stroke or there's an accident, the wife cannot sell the home without the husband's signature. Makes and so sense. she has to go to court. So it's much better to do powers of attorney saying, I would trust certain people to make choices. Would these be general powers of attorney, specific powers of attorney? just no. vary upon the situations. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it would probably be a general power of attorney. General means buy, sell, lease, transfer, handle taxes, do a bunch of things. Durable means that it works when you actually need it. It works when you're incapacitated. I could give you a specific power to go purchase or do something for me, and then if I became incapacitated, it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. But for estate planning, it's like no, I trust this person and this alternate. So
0: the, I mean, the most, most, the general one for this situation is the most common, most. Yeah. but somebody might yeah. have a reason to do something else. But and from a
1: practical standpoint, some are they are effective the day they're signed, and some are what are called springing. No one can do anything till two doctors say I'm incapacitated. If you I have see. that kind of document, the the agent can't do anything until they get the doctor statement. And then I All should right. let your listeners know for real property. You can't just wave a power of attorney at someone. You have to record it in the county in which the real property is located before you could sell or do something on behalf of that property.
0: This brings up that one story I told you about or two years ago. This is kind of what had happened. They, they thought this had all been done, but oh, it yeah. hadn't been. Oh, yeah. And then we right. got into it, and then the title company says, and the escrow company said, well, we can't, we can't transfer ownership here. We got we have nothing to work with. What's the authority and, for that? And everybody yeah. thought it had been done. The people were all the all, all the heirs were in California and they oh, thought it had been boy. done, but it hadn't been right. done.
1: So it was a real mess. California's high probate fees too.
0: So um, you think you want to talk about trust anymore? I want to move on to. Some no, other I things? think
1: that's enough about trust. And okay. if someone really doesn't care who you know how it goes, this is an adult beneficiary. There's something called a transfer on death deed now, where you can actually do a deed that says, when I die, this goes to my daughter or my son.
0: Now, can this be implemented after a person has taken title in a different way? Absolutely. Just like yeah. the community property agreement can be done later?
1: Absolutely. Ah, I and see. It's pretty cheap. You don't have to create a trust. It's like, it's just here. It's revocable. But then when you die, someone has to get the death certificate and pay 10 bucks. But it's quick. And really. is that
0: new to the state of Washington? It's a couple a federal, years old. A couple of news, A lot of states have this and new to other
1: states? It's fairly new to our state. Okay. Correct. And again, that's called? A transfer on death deed. Transfer on death Just deed. like a brokerage account. You could say, when I die, it goes to someone. It's transfer on death. Okay. So now you can do that with real property.
0: And it's just something you have an attorney write it up. You record yep. it. You record it. And you say revocable. Well, that means the person who grants this later on come back and say, I don't want to do this anymore.
1: Yeah. I change it and it goes from Greg to Scott. It goes it. from okay. right. Joe to Sam or, right. you know. It's
0: flexible that way. Yep. Okay. So you we had some bullet points here and you, you had a list of things to avoid. Want to cover those?
1: Yeah, I think that probably explaining. Like, maybe we should tell a story and then we can like debrief and, and talk about gifting. Okay. A lot of times people are worried, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to go through a probate. I'm going to give this to my oldest son. And so, dad, who bought a home for $35,000, right, and yeah. is now worth $850,000, and he decides, I don't want to deal with the probate. I don't want to deal with attorneys. So, he does a quick claim deed to his son. Mm-hmm. And then he dies two months later. Well, what he has done is probably created a huge capital gain problem for the son. What if the son doesn't even live there, doesn't even make it his home? Dad's basis, what he paid for that was $35,000. Mm-hmm. When you make a gift, you give what you give your basis and the fair market value. So I'm like, got my hands here. $35,000 basis and giving an $850,000 gift. It would have been much better for dad to keep in his name. When dad died, it would revalue. It would step up to the $850,000. And then it could go to the son. And you don't have to do a fancy trust. You could have done a will or a transfer on death deed. But why not keep it in your name and then get the tax step up? That way, when it goes to the beneficiary, if they sell it, they pay zero capital gain. OK,
0: let's walk through that again, because that was confusing to me. All right. Okay, so so <laughs> let's just say you have a $700,000 increase in appreciation. Okay? Yes. And I quick claim that to somebody. That person who received that receives it, somebody say, essentially gave somebody a seven hundred thousand dollars that's what that's what happened if I quit claim that property you I say I'm taking it out of my name giving it to you you just you just became owner of that is that a taxable event for you the person who received that seven hundred thousand on the spot as far as income tax it's goes? not
1: taxable for the receiver it's taxable to the giver but Washington has no gift tax okay and the federal exemptions over 11 million so big deal you know okay but Again, the important thing is if you gave it away, you're giving. What did you pay for this? What is your original basis?
0: Well, thirty-five thousand, like you said. Okay,
1: right? or, or could make it a okay. hundred. So if, if if you paid a hundred, mm-hmm. or you paid thirty-five and you added a new roof, so okay. your basis is a hundred. Okay. When you give it, you gave me the fair market value of seven hundred, mm-hmm. but you also gave me your basis. Okay. So that means that I now have your tax problem. I own the whole seven hundred thousand, but if I sell it, I have to pay a capital gain on the difference of the hundred to the seven hundred. Oh, that's where it gets, okay, that's where I got a little confused. Whereas if instead you gave it to me when you died, it would revalue. It, it gets a brand new step up in basis.
0: Oh, so the basis becomes 800000
1: Exactly. Whatever. Oh, so
0: now if so I So don't to, give it too soon. <laughs> so if I, if I go
1: sell it for 800000
0: I don't have a capital gains issue. Correct. But before I had a capital gains issue on the 700000 Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you might want to cover a little bit about, people ask me periodically about, why can I get a gift for only ten thousand? Of course, that changes. Sure. What does it mean? So talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. This, this. Um, I guess the best way to explain it is every person has a certain amount that just doesn't matter. It's called a, the the annual gifting, mm-hmm. and it used to be ten thousand indexed inflation. So right now you can give fifteen thousand as many people as you want. I could write a check, you know, or Bill Gates could write a check to everyone in the U.S. Bezos, right, for fifteen thousand. You wouldn't have to pay a gift tax. Okay. You uh, wouldn't even have to declare neither it. Neither party would have to re- report any right. sort of The receiver thing. always gets it tax-free. So
0: all gifts in any form.
1: They're a limited amount, 15000 or less, are just de minimis. They're the, small. They don't matter.
0: If somebody gifted me $100,000, would I have to pay income tax on that $100,000?
1: You would not, but they would have to file a return saying federally that they used part of their $11 million in and change. They so don't right. have to pay a tax, but they have to file a return that I gave to Greg McKim north of Fifteen thousand in one but, year. But okay,
0: how does that affect the person who gave the gift?
1: It means that when they die, instead of having eleven million, they've got eleven million minus the. Got it. The it diminishes the
0: exempted yeah. part yeah. of their estate that gets that gets. It at that used of to death. be a big
1: deal because you had a one million exemption during life and one million at death. Yes. And then they got rid of it and says doesn't matter if it's during life or death. And then it grew to $11 million. So it's like very few people are going to give away more than $11 million bucks. So here's the
0: answer that people ask me all the time. Greg, if I get a gift of any amount from someone, according to you, it's not taxable to the person who receives it. Correct. And it's not taxable at the time of the gifting to the person who gave it, but it does affect eventually... The amount of tax exempted portion of their estate
1: of the giver of the right. giver. Okay, yeah, there's something called a net gift. If you got really large, sometimes you'll give a net gift, and you want someone to pay the taxes to receive the gift, but that's very rare. Okay, All for right. most of our clients, when you receive a gift, it's just you got just, a gift. Just in
0: case there are any listeners out there that really like my show <laughs> and you want to you want to <laughs> test that with me, feel free to.
1: And a husband and wife can give him thirty grand, not just limited to fifteen. How about that?
0: Okay, so we talked about you had that on here, gifting while alive. That's that's what we covered just now. Right. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, kids as creditors could take your property. What does that mean?
1: Oh, that's the other the biggest problem. So I, you know, no one wants to create a tax problem. But let's say husband, um, he same same scenario. He's got this this property, and instead of giving it totally, he just adds his son. So he makes it joint with right of survivor. He adds his son to his to the ownership to the to ownership. The title, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's going to get around court. Da 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 da. But what if the son is going to a, uh. What's the most rabid fans here? Seahawk fans. He's going to Seahawk game and he's he's in a hurry and he's got his face painted and he's maybe had a couple beers before getting there, which see, and he's in a hurry and he hits a car full of lawyers. <laughs> what and a you nightmare! You may say it's a good start, but guess what? Yeah. Before they sue the son, they're going to do a little search and they're going to see that he is on title with dad. He owns dad's house. So if you add someone, you quit claim deed to someone else during your lifetime, yes. you are liable to their creditors. Yeah, even if not you're, just them.
0: Even, even if you're not on the 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 debt instrument, right? As soon as you have an asset, exactly, somebody can come after you for any sort of uh, of uh, of injury or or debts debts that are owed. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Or you give it to your your. Let's let's say a daughter, right? And then the daughter goes through a divorce. Guess what? The divorcing spouse might be able to get some okay. portion of that from you. So now,
0: can these things be avoided with trust? Absolutely.
1: That's one of the main. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One, one of the advantages of we trust We need to know your general.
1: goals, and then we can say, hey, okay. here's, here's a better way to handle that. And then last but not least, you had on here Medicaid. Yeah, Medicaid, um, sometimes, as you know, the house is the largest asset of a, of a person. Many times, yes. Yeah, and sometimes people run out of money, and all they have left is their house. And if they really run out of money, they can qualify for Medicaid. But why should you and I have to pay for something if someone had an asset? So what would happen is when they die... The state of Washington makes a claim, and they get reimbursed for their cost of care. It's called a Medicaid lien. And it's lien against the real property. Yeah, so the home doesn't provide a barrier to getting on the state treatment. But if you own it when you die, they're going to get repaid. So Medicaid planning and attorney planning is sometimes to do an irrevocable trust to get around the five-year look or to set up special trusts for a spouse when you die that the state can't go after. Well, I've heard
0: of this thing recently where they call it Medicaid divorces. Oh, that's true. Well, you have two people. One of them becomes really ill. Yep. And what that person, what they do is they divorce. They still live together. They're still in love. They're still cohabitating. But all the assets are in one person's name, and the person who's ill is completely wiped out of assets. Mm -hmm. And now that they're divorced, Medicaid can start to provide a benefit to the person who's destitute and doesn't have any right to the other person's assets
1: that's correct greg it's a little sad and it's somewhat practical i guess it's yeah. like you can actually because there's unlimited gifting between spouses while they're married yeah. as long as they're us citizens you can move everything into the well spouse then you divorce and now the ill spouse they have less than 2 grand to their name Guess what? They qualify for Medicaid.
0: Yeah, and even if Medicaid knows you've done this, it's perfectly right.
1: acceptable. It's it's legal. But if you
0: don't do it, they'll come after That's everything. Right. <laughs> and and if you don't want to wipe out all your See savings. See an attorney or, now
1: or later. See one at yeah. some point before you, you you screw it up.
0: Well, how interesting. Well, yeah. I think we've just about covered everything you had here in your bullet points. Anything that jumps out at you you want to throw in? Because I'm going to start wrapping up the show. i got to. You know, I got
1: a, I got a producer over there waving. No, I understand. Me. No, I think it's pretty good. I, th- I think it's nice that you help frame this for people. You're helping them with the process. It's good to know that they can review it with an attorney, but you can also make changes later. And with a big asset, it's just nice to know that you get to control it upon your death.
0: Well, I'd like everybody to know that they're listening, in case you didn't remember, to Home Talk with Greg McKim. This is the show where I try to cover everything about homeownership to the moon and back again. And I air here every Tuesday from 3 to 4 on 1150 KKNW. You can reach me off air at 206-250-6545 or email me at gmckim, that's G-M-C-K-I-M, at Lonezilla.com, or feel free to visit LoneZilla.com or listen to my podcasts at 1150kknw.com under audio, audio, not audio, audio archives. Or call my cousin, Steve Waltar, at 425, regarding state planning, of course, 425-455-6788. Again, that's 425-455-6788, or info at waltar.com, or go to waltar.com. So next week, which is April 2nd, I will have a guest from a show, I mean, from a company called, um, let me see if I can find it here, (laughs) Paragon Prefab, Ken prester i've ran across this it's a modular home building um company who puts together a, a modular section of homes that lasts three i don't remember how many times long but i watched a video online i was amazed they, they burned down a normal house versus this and this house stood there for three times as long it didn't even mm. burn all the way down mm. and they claim that it's more cost effective than stick building homes you can do anything you want and it's safer and I think it's a phenomenal product, and I'm really interested in having them come in here and elaborate on it and talk about some of the pros and cons. It's sound-deadening, um, you know, again, e- economical. So I'm pretty interested in seeing about it. So um, we've got about one minute left. I'm going to just do a little plug for myself. If you're thinking about buying selling a home, know anybody who's thinking about signing, buying or selling a home, financing, refinancing a home, please think of me, Greg McKim at 206 250 I pride myself of being a Northwest Seattle native, and we're a local company. The dollar stays here while the banks are bigger than us, but <laughs> we make the money. We, we invest it right back in here in the community. Thank you very much for listening to my show. I appreciate it. and hope hear you, I hope to hear from you sometime, and please listen again next week. Over and out.